Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible today, would you turn with me now to the book of Romans, chapter 6. A particular text I'd like to speak from for just a few minutes is on page 8. Romans 6, 1 through 14. thought since it was a baptism Sunday, maybe I would just speak from this text. So very, very rich. We'll just touch on some points, but Apostle Paul was writing. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who's died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members, as instrument to, your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. And we pray for your spirits working with your word now, our Father, in Jesus' good name. Amen. So I've noticed something, and I'm sure many of you have as well, in the way that people react to Christian ethics. People really react, as you know, if Christians try to take their moral standards and hold them over other people. You know, they don't like that. You don't try to legislate your morality for other people and judge them. But it's interesting at the same time, people also really react if Christians don't hold themselves to those very same moral standards. People get very upset with Christians, and rightly so, when Christians talk about the grace of God, God forgives my sins, and they use that as an excuse to go right on being bad people and, you know, mistreating others and and acting in all kinds of wrong ways. You might have the same story. In my extended family, we've got situations where some kind of loud Christian has been really living in very you know, bad ways, and it just sours people around them on the whole idea of Jesus. So there's kind of this interesting sense that Christians, you know, you need to get your own moral act together, and that, that, is, that is a big issue, and Paul takes it head on, you can see here, as he opens up his text, he says, Are we, should we keep on sinning because grace is so gracious? Should we just keep on sinning that grace may abound? And his conclusion in verse 2, you see there, I think we would all instinctively agree with. Absolutely not. He couldn't say it more strongly in the Greek that he's writing in. By no means. I mean, it's just like absolutely no way. And he goes on, like, if you've been saved from sin, the way he describes it, how can we who have died to sin? I mean, Jesus saved us from sin. We have, he says, 
died to it, like we've definitively broken with sin because of Jesus, how can you possibly then go on living in sin? And all of that I think we would say amen. But verse 3 is a surprise. How can we keep on living in sin? Don't you know that we've been baptized? Now that I think is a surprise. Because if you or I were going to point to a time and a place in our lives where we died to sin, like we definitively broke with sin, and from that moment on, it is just inexcusable for us to continue willingly living in sin, when would that point in time be? I very much doubt most of us would say, well, when I was baptized, of course. But that's what Paul says. He says, how can we continue living in sin? Don't you know that we were baptized? Now, that obviously raises some, some objections immediately, and they're, they're good objections. I mean, some of you would immediately say, wait a second, Pastor Miller, I don't know where you're going with this sermon, but there is nothing magical about baptism water. I mean, there was nothing magical about what just happened here with these two girls, and that's absolutely true. There's nothing magical about baptism water. Just because somebody has water poured over their head or they get dunked in a pool or however it happened, that does not mean that there is any automatic moral change, any automatic spiritual change, there are people who, some of, most of you, I guess, in this room are probably baptized. You know, there are a lot of baptized people. They don't repent of their sins. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't obey Jesus. They go right on living like nothing happened. You see that in the Bible. You see that in your experience. So there's nothing magical about baptism. That's true. And that relates to another objection we'd probably want to raise. Are you saying, Pastor Miller, that baptism is some kind of like free pass? Like you can say, look, I'm baptized. That means I'm good. I can just kind of forget about, you know, being serious about following Jesus, turning away from my sin, obeying him. No, baptism is certainly not a free pass. In fact, the whole point of Paul's argument here is that baptism actually imposes obligations on us. It doesn't exempt us from those obligations. So baptism isn't magical, and it's not some kind of like free pass. You know, you got your hell insurance, now you're good. And yet, and yet, Paul says that in baptism, something enormous has happened. He says, we were baptized into Jesus' death. We were connected in baptism to what Jesus did on the cross in some way that we were not connected before. And if you don't believe that and profess that that is true, you're actually not listening to the Bible. Because that's what Paul says here. So I just am curious, like, what is going on with Paul's understanding of what happened in our baptisms. What I want to do is I just want to put baptism on the shelf for a minute. I want to kind of step back with you, and I just want to take a moment, and I want to just look together at how, apart from baptism, how Paul describes in these few verses what I'm going to call two realms of existence. This is my language. It's not Paul's, and maybe you don't like it, which is okay, but I'm trying to sort of get at what he does here, and you can see it as you read through it. Paul talks about Christians here people who believe in Jesus and follow Jesus, he talks about these people as if they have been moved out of one world into another world, almost. And probably the clearest place where he says that is at the end of verse 13, the middle of verse 13. He says, present yourselves to God as those, notice the language, who have been brought, what? From death to life. Like, you've been moved out of a realm of existence that actually could be called death, and you've been moved into another realm of existence that's called life. Now, notice throughout the text how he describes what it was like back in that old realm. Back in that old realm, you'll notice, you and I had a really rough identity. 
and we had an absolutely awful destiny. He describes our identity back in that old world, that old realm, verse 6, as our old self. And if you look at the rest of verse 6, he says the old self that you and I had was enslaved to sin. Very strong language. Maybe we don't think of that as being how it felt, but Paul says that's actually how it was. We were in the old, in our old identity, we were enslaved to sin. We actually couldn't not sin. He describes it in verse 12 as sin, this disobedience to God, this refusal to conform to what God wants for us. He says it reigns, it rules in your mortal bodies, making you obey its passions. And maybe some of you know what this is like. Sin gets into your body. It gets right down into the most visceral reactions you have to life. It makes you lust for things. It makes you lust for for honor and and envy your neighbor. And and it can make you wrathful when you don't get your way. And it can make you really, really fearful that things might go to pieces if you don't feel like you're in control. And it can make you do, it can just, it just, it gets into your, sort of into your, like your, your literal physical reactions to things. Our bodies are made to want and made to react, and sin just grabs onto those powerful drives and, and passions, and it just starts to rule them. And many of you know what it's like when you, like you can't stop the reaction. You can't turn your eyes away from that thing that makes you lust. You can't stop you know, lying awake at night, you know, wanting this or dreading that, or you can't stop the wrath that bursts out of you when something crosses you or whatever. Paul says that's how it was. We were, our, bodily, our bodily passions were ruled by sin. And he goes on to say something else about that old life, and this is really kind of crazy. He says in verse 14 that one of the reasons why sin had dominion over us was that we were under God's law. Now that is a little bit of a mind bender, but think about it. If you don't love God, you don't want to submit to God. You want God to kind of go away and give you his throne. What happens if you encounter God's law speaking to you and saying, thou shalt or thou shalt not? How many of you have ever raised a child and noticed something interesting about children? When you say, don't do something, does that make the child be like, oh, okay. Or do that. How many of your children are like, oh, absolutely. There's something about the law being commanded or forbidden or worse still condemned. It actually arouses more resistance. And we were under law, not a friendly law, a law that constantly showed us you are falling short of what God commands and demands of you. And the more we encountered God's law, the louder the law condemned us as sinners. Man, and it's heavy stuff. Sinners who deserve God's wrath. Sinners who deserve God's curse. And paradoxically, as Paul will go on to say in the next chapter of the letter, that actually aroused our passions to sin more. So that while we were under law, under this condemning law of God, we could never escape the tyranny of sin over our passions and over our conduct. And the end of that road, the awful destiny that we were facing as God's law condemned us and we kept on shaking our fist at him was death. Death under God's judgment. That was the old self, the old identity, the old destiny. Death. But now, Paul says, Notice the other realm that he describes. It couldn't be more different. I mean, we have entered a totally different realm of existence. And the way that Paul describes this new existence is that you have died to sin. 
It's as if in that old life that you used to live, you literally drop dead in that life. You cease to exist in that world, and suddenly you woke up in this whole other world. It's that dramatic. Well, what's so different about this new realm that we find ourselves in? Well, the awesome thing about this new realm, as Paul describes it here, is that the defining character in this new realm, the the person in this realm who makes this realm what it is, it's not, thank God, me, it's not you, the defining character who makes this new realm what it is, is who? You guys should see this in the text. Who's the defining character who makes this new realm what it is? It isn't you and me. It's Jesus. It's, it's Christ. We have been baptized, Paul says, into Christ. You want to figure out what life is like in this new realm? You've got to see something of what, what, who Jesus is because the defining realities in this new realm are not my sin and God's law condemning me and the death that awaits me because of my sin. The defining realities here are the death and resurrection of Jesus. Those are the defining realities here. And specifically, and I'll show you in the text, but specifically what Paul says here is that in this new realm, my relationship to sin and death now is defined by Jesus' relationship to sin and death. You guys with me? In this new realm, my relationship to sin and death and your relationship to sin and death are defined by Jesus' relationship to sin and death. And our relationship to God is defined by Jesus' relationship to God. Look how Paul describes Jesus' relationship to sin and death and God in verses 9 and 10. The first thing he wants us to know is, he says, we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never going to die again. So the first thing you need to know about Jesus, his relationship to death is this. He's never going to die again. He is literally exempt now from any possibility that death will ever have any power over him ever again whatsoever. Death has zero power over Jesus. How can that be? Well, Paul goes on to explain in verse 9 and verse 10, the reason why death has no more power over Jesus is because Jesus has already died all the death it's possible to die. (laughs) Like he has gone to the bottom of that well and he's touched the bottom and come back because he took all of our sin He died all of the death that all of that sin deserved. He paid our debt to God's justice, Paul says, once for all. Death has no dominion over him because the death he died, he died to sin. He died for sin once for all, and that was it. He exhausted death's power so that once our sins had killed him, once God's justice had been visited upon Jesus and was satisfied, then the reality is our sins can't kill Jesus anymore. They're powerless to kill anybody anymore. And so when he rises from the dead, Paul can say in verse 9, death has no more dominion over him. It's never going to happen again. He can never go back. He can never return to that realm of death because it's gone. It's done. He's, he has killed death, <laughs> if you want to think of it that way. And he simply and eternally, verse 10, just lives to God. The life he lives now, He just lives to God. Sin's gone. Death is gone. All that's behind him. He just lives to God now. That's Jesus. And the same is true for everybody in this realm that is defined by his death and resurrection. If Jesus died for your sins and my sins, if he took the condemnation of God's law for you and me, then the reality is, dear saints, you and I 
not only aren't condemned anymore, we can't be condemned anymore. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul gets very strong in verse 14. He says, sin will have no dominion over you because you're not under law anymore. <laughs> you are under grace. God's law has been answered for you. Your death has been died. Your debt has been paid. Your sins have no more power to kill you than they have to kill Jesus. You are, because of Jesus, 100% loved by God and nothing can ever separate you from his love ever again. Jesus' death was your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. And what that means is, not only is your old destiny gone forever, your sins actually can't kill you anymore. That destiny of death is gone because Jesus already went there and came back. But not only is that old destiny gone forever, the glorious thing, friends, is that your old identity is gone too. That old self, that old self with its endless quarrel against God, its dread of God, its hatred of God, its resistance to God, its wanting to be God, that old self, it, that old self is still, it, 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 it was crucified, he says in verse 6, Jesus killed it on the cross and he buried it in his tomb. That old self breathed its last, it's dead and buried in the old world. It's never coming back. That is not who you are anymore. That is not who you are in Christ anymore. Because you have passed with Jesus through the judgment of God, through death, into this resurrection life where he lives to God, and so do you. He says it in verse 11. Look at verse 11. You must consider yourselves because of what has happened to Jesus. You must also consider yourselves dead to sin, dead to it, friends, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You've got to consider that this is so. Now, you know, working that out is a process in which, you know, we still are, sometimes we fall back into the old habits of the old self. We, you know, it's easy to forget who we are in this new realm. It's easy to kind of feel those old feelings of the old self and kind of like it's, it, it, we spend a lot of time living those old habits. It's easy to go, kind of go back to them, but it's not who we are anymore. And we still wrestle with temptation. I mean, Paul says in verse 12, Look, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. You're free now. You don't have to sin anymore. You're like Jesus. You're living to God. You don't have to sin anymore. Sin has no power over you, but don't let it reign. Like, don't revert. Don't, don't kind of get comfortable and start sliding back into the, you know, the old patterns that feel like kind of old shoes, comfortable shoes. The f but, but the fact that there's a, a process of learning to live this new self that we now are, the fact that we, we do have a process that we're still living in of learning how to be this new self does not change for one moment the fact that we have died to sin. That is definitively true. That is definitively true. We are not dying to sin. We are not making progress in being dead to sin. We're not, to quote the line from the movie, mostly dead. We are not mostly dead to sin. We are absolutely, definitively dead to sin. We are comprehensively dead to sin. We're not dead to some sins. Like, I'm dead to every sin except the anger problem that just kind of hangs on. No, we are dead to all sin all the time, absolutely and comprehensively. We are dead to it, and what that means is sin is absolutely out of place in this new life of our new self in this resurrection world that Jesus has brought us into. It has no place here. It does not fit this new self. It does not fit this new life at all. Everything about sin is foreign here. 
It is as foreign to us to go on in sin as it would be foreign to Jesus to sin against the Father in this new realm because he died to all of that. We are dead to it too as much as it still pulls us because our bodies have habits. Consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. But what was it, and I'm getting close to done, what was it, now we're back to the question, what was it that brought us into this new realm? What sprung us out of one realm into the next? When was that moment of transition? When was that decisive break, the old life, the old self? Well, the great transition, Paul says, he locates it in baptism. He does not locate it when you prayed a prayer. He does not locate it when you came to a decision for Jesus. He does not locate it when you had some spiritual experience on some mountaintop somewhere in your life. He says we were baptized into Christ Jesus. We were baptized into his death. We were buried with him by baptism. Now think about what baptism is. What just happened to these two little girls? In baptism, Jesus said, I want you to baptize people into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism is when God gave you his family name. And he marked you publicly as someone who has passed with Jesus through death into life. The promise of baptism is as surely as water has washed your body, your sins, because of what Jesus has done, your sins are washed away. That's the promise that God gives to you in your baptism. The promise of baptism is that because of Jesus, there's no condemnation. The promise of baptism is that because of Jesus, you are under grace. And you must consider it so. That's the promise of baptism. Now, I know a lot of you are saying, well, I thought that happened. I thought that transition happened when I believed in Jesus. Well, that's true. The promise is you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved, you and your household. If you believe in Jesus, you are under grace. It's absolutely true. You believe in Jesus, that is, that is a tr transition, but it doesn't change the significance of baptism at all. And the best way I can illustrate this is my relationship with my wife. I was in love with Sarah long before I married her. I had a relationship with Sarah, a real relationship, long before I married her. We were engaged to be married for quite some time before we got married. And then there came the ceremony on July 27, 2002. And the fact that we had a real relationship and a committed relationship before that date doesn't make the vows on that date one bit less significant. Because it was from that day on when the vows were on the record that our promises and our commitment to each other were now a matter of public record. This was the official start of our union as man and wife. And you know what? When Sarah and I experience sins in our relationship and we experience stresses in our relationship, we do not go back to all those warm and fuzzy feelings. Jack, do you remember in June 2002 how warm and fuzzy we felt? We don't go back to that. And we don't go to our feelings since. Like, you know, I remember this day in like 2011 when we just, it was such a good day. I think we're going to make it. And we surely don't go back to our performance of the promises that we made on July 27, 2002. Like, man, you know, Sarah, the reason I'm going to hang with you is because you've just been so faithful to your promises to me. And I've been so faithful to my promises to you. Hopefully we have been, but that is not what we go back to when things really rock our marriage. You know what we go back to when things really rock our marriage? We go back to the vows. 
We go back to the promises. We go back, yes, to the ceremony, to the ritual. Promises that absolutely call for a response, but those promises stick whether we have responded to them or not. And by rough analogy, in baptism, God goes on the record. Not just with a general promise to the world, but with a very particular promise to the one who is baptized. Today, I name you with my own name, and you are mine. It is a tangible, public, deeply personal act of God that publicly joins us to Jesus and to everything that God has promised in Jesus for all the world to see. And if you say, oh, Ben, it's just a ritual. Oh, really? Is marriage just a ritual? Is a marriage ceremony just a ritual? And when we hit rough waters in our Christian lives, the Bible points us back to God's public promise. Don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Reckon yourselves, therefore, dead to sin and alive to God. You know, if you're always going back to, well, I believed, I believed, I believed, you risk putting your faith in your response rather than God's promise. For us and for our children, baptism is a lifelong summons to respond, yes. Why do we respond in faith and trust and hope and obedience? Because God has spoken a sure word in baptism. John Calvin says, as often as we fall away, we ought to recall the memory of our baptism and fortify our mind with it that we may always be sure and confident of the forgiveness of sins because God is on the record. And you can also see the absurdity then of, you know, trusting in your baptism but ignoring God's promise. You know, there are people that do that. They say, you know, I had water sprinkled on me as a baby. I guess I'm, you know, I have my hell insurance. I'm set. I'm good. Even though I never pay any attention to what God has actually promised or, you know, anything that he commands, I just kind of have this water experience in my life, and so I'm good. Well, that's obviously absurd because Paul's whole point here is that God's work and promise in baptism is a summons to act. He says you were baptized. That means you're dead to sin and alive to God, and therefore God wants you to walk in newness of life. Love the promise of your baptism, and because you love that promise, refuse to serve sin. You're dead to it. Take your baptism as seriously as God does. Luther, Martin Luther, we're we're told, I've said this many times to you, that when he was really struggling and the devil was just after him, he would shout and throw his inkwell across the room and say, I am baptized. I am baptized. You know, the problem for a lot of us, dear saints, is we don't feel dead to sin. We don't feel alive to God. And, you know, as I said earlier, in the modern world, it can only be authentically true if you authentically feel it. Can I just say something to you? Your feelings lie to you. They lie to you. And when the bottom falls out within your own heart or in the world around you, you, my dear baptized friend, you don't have to rely on your feelings. You have a sure word from God who cannot lie. And so in in temptation, in conflict, in fear, in doubt, in disinclination, my call to you today, reckon it so. Dead to sin, alive to God. I am baptized. Amen. Give us grace to believe your promises, O Lord our God, and to grow in them. In Jesus we pray.